Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. We used to think of freelancers and independent contractors as outside of the norm, but that's no longer the case. The Bureau of Labor Statistics found that contingent workers, those that don't have a contract or understanding for long-term employment, made up roughly 2 to 4% of all workers in 2005. That same year, about 7% of workers were independent contractors. That has definitely changed. While we don't know the exact numbers, since folks sometimes do freelance work in addition to an existing job, the BLS found that there were 55 million U.S. gig workers in 2017. That's the most recent data we have and doesn't account for pandemic numbers. But it shows a dramatic shift. More than one-third, or about 36% of U.S. workers, are now part of what we call the gig economy. The gig economy is referred to as the sharing economy. This includes traditional freelance gigs like writing and music, but also renting out homes and other more non-traditional gigs. Those jobs where there's no W-2 or withholding aren't just paid differently. They have different tax consequences, too. To sort it all out, I've asked Sagar Shah to the show. Sagar is a CPA and MBA and also the managing partner at his firm, as well as the managing member of his real estate investment fund. Prior to his tax career, Sagar worked for the KPMG and Audit. Many of the businesses Sagar engages with and consults with are smaller businesses and startups in the greater New York area. He regularly posts tax tips on his Instagram, and I'll put that link in the show notes for you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. So let's talk freelance and gig economy. What kinds of issues are you hearing um, from taxpayers who are either freelancing as their primary way of employment or just doing it on the side? So I think in the last few years, certainly during the pandemic, but even leading up to there, there's been quite a shift from the normal worker where I see IT professionals now contracting. I see people working with Uber as a side job. And then even if you're on something like TikTok, for example, You see all these different tips and ways to make money in the country right now. It's just something that's really expanding. And Mm -hmm. the biggest issue I see with that is somebody walks in, they did a bunch of different jobs. They figured they went on 1099, they loved it. They were making all this money. And then all of a sudden they have this huge tax bill that they weren't preparing for. That's probably the biggest thing I see as an issue. But, you know, aside from that, I think a lot of people are taking advantage of this new economy that's out here where you really can market yourself and your skills and you're not really tied into one employer or relying on finding a job that you're going to hold forever. It is possible to grow yourself with multiple different jobs, hiring your own people to sub out jobs that you get. And it's like you mentioned in your intro, it's a huge, huge growing industry right now. And I've actually been on both sides of that and done both at the same time. So I've been, there have been years where I was just a freelancer. There were years when I was just an employee. And then there were a lot of years when I was both um, because of the writing or the podcast or other things. 
And it gets really complicated. It's complicated for somebody like me to figure out, and I do this for a living. Yeah. So what kind of advice do you give people who are, especially one of the things you mentioned, folks who are doing more than one gig? Because I think it's easier to plan. So for example, when I was freelancing, I had one job that paid me the same amount of money every month. That was easy because I got paid a flat rate. When I had a freelancing gig that paid me by the eyeball, I got, it was tax work. So of course, during tax season, there were phenomenal months, right? And then in other months, not so much. Um, And that's a lot more complicated to keep track of. If you had a lot of those going at the same time, definitely hard to keep track of. So like, where do you kind of point people in the direction to get started to not be overwhelmed by that big tax bill at the end of the year? So I always tell people the first thing you should do is whether or not you think this is going to be your new career or just something you're doing to fill some time is get a tax structure, get a legal structure in place. Either get an LLC. If you think it's going to be bigger, you can make it an S-corp. You can elect C-corp status. You should talk to your accountant definitely regarding that specific structure. But even beyond the legal benefits, there's Mm -hmm. an organizational benefit to having that structure put in place. One, you go and open your new bank account for that business so that the money that's coming in from all these gigs that you're doing is going into one place. Yes. A lot of times people co-mingle their funds. And I mean, I'm sure you've seen this. It's just a complete nightmare trying to figure out someone's personal credit card expenses versus their business expenses six months after their taxes are due. Right. And I've done it. I, I, I'll go ahead and say like mea culpa, like I commingle and it took me a while to figure out better way to do things. But I think especially like you mentioned, sometimes you're not sure that this is going to become a regular thing. So yeah. the first time that someone pays you a little bit to write or, you know, to play in a gig or to, to drive or, or rent, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, you think to yourself, this is manageable. And you think to yourself, I'll keep great records because I'm that kind of person mm-hmm. until you're not doing that. So that's one of the things I, I agree with you about having a separate account or even a separate credit card. I know some people don't want a, a separate account because they feel like they can track the money coming in. I think the money coming in is easier to track than the money going out. Sometimes the credit card is a great thing because then you can just say, you know what, this is my tax girl card or this is my entity card or whatever, so that you at least can keep track of those expenses separately. And it's only to your benefit to do that because at the end of the year, when you are trying to scramble to find your expenses, Mm -hmm. you're not going to remember that dinner you had six months prior with a potential client, right? You may be able to remember, maybe your records are great, but if it's in your personal account, it's going to be a lot harder to find it than when it's in your business account or through a business credit card and you're going to see it there. I a thousand percent agree with you. I have said before, I've written before, and it's always the the tax folks who are listening now who are going to say, oh, that's not the case with me. But I have found in my practice, because I do deal with a lot of folks who get 1099 and and typically um, I don't do returns, but I help people out of jams. So typically when they're coming to see me, they're already in trouble. But most of the time they're under deducting. They're not over deducting because most of the time I find that it is exactly what you just said, that somebody had a legitimate expense six months ago that they forgot about because they put it in their bank account. So they've, they've done their taxes at the end of the year. They had a tax bill. Maybe they get audited. Now it's a bigger mess and they could have had a smaller bill to begin with. 
I think another thing that a lot of people like a logical thing that comes after having that separate account is should I get QuickBooks or how do I keep track of this stuff? And mm-hmm. obviously QuickBooks is great. We're tax professionals. We know how to use it. But I have had clients who've used Excel with pivot tables and it's been just as, just as efficient and it comes out just as good. So, but even beyond getting to that step, it's like if the stuff is all in one place, if all your expenses are in one place out of one account, you know, you can hire someone for a minimal cost. If you hate doing bookkeeping to get it done, they're not going to have to crack through a million different items. So it's just one thing leads on to another that, but it all starts with having that separate account for your banks, as well as your credit cards. Right. And on the expense side, I do think, you know, we kind of joke about it on tax Twitter, but typically if you're paying someone to help you as you go along, it's less expensive than hiring someone to clean it up at the end. Right. So like you mentioned the having someone do your bookkeeping, it's usually a lot more affordable and deductible (laughs) to have them do it as you go rather than hand them a big Tupperware full of receipts and say, can you figure this out for me? Yeah. On March 30th, no less. Yes. Yes. When prices are going up. (laughs) So now you asked me earlier about like, what are the gigs? I I kind of thought there's three main places that I've seen people gravitating towards. Mm -hmm. The first one is the side gig where you have your regular job and maybe you're supplementing some income with driving for Uber, having an Amazon store, doing some tax returns on the side. That's one side of it. The other side of it is the freelancer who maybe is going for a long-term full-time contract, but mm-hmm. the contract would only be one or two years with a maybe IT professional, somebody who's a writer who's going to take a, a job with a specific company. So those are like the main two, main two like side gigs. But the third that I see a lot, especially last year, where I think a lot of people's eyes opened up to the benefits of being a business owner or having your own income is real estate professionals and people who are day trading stocks. I think Mm -hmm. that's like a huge, huge developing market. There's a ton of new retail investors that entered the market last year. A lot of them are putting themselves in precarious situations because they don't fully understand some of the tax impacts and also not being able to utilize the losses that maybe they had while trading because of the capital gains recognition losses or laws. So there are structures that can be elected for all of these different types of concepts. Um, the main thing, and I'm sure you've touched on this before, is the self-employment taxes that get tied up with the 1099 gigs that come in. Mm-hmm. And kind of touching back on what we were talking about earlier with the self-employment taxes, the income that comes into you, you know, you may get a 1099, you may not get a 1099. The benefit of having that separate bank account is it's your responsibility to report that income, whether your contractor gave you the 1099 or not. Right. So having that separate bank account, one clears that additional hurdle of being compliant and making sure you're reporting all this other income that's coming in, even if you didn't get a 1099, or maybe you're going to get a 1099 down the road as a late 1099, which now can't use the excuse that I didn't get a 1099. That's why I didn't pay this income tax. So touching on that self-employment tax and the structure, I think One thing that I've definitely seen a lot of my clients having questions on is, do I do an LLC? Do I do an S-Corp? Do I do a C-Corp? Do I register in Delaware? Because I always hear people registering in Delaware. What are the benefits of that? And I think those are key concepts to kind of have an understanding of prior to even starting your first gig. 
especially the LLC versus S Corp, which I think are the two best, typically the two best structures to elect for individuals that are doing the freelance or the side gig. To me, the main thing to consider with those two is the state you're in. Uh, for example, in New York City, I've had people come to me that they're, they've read a million articles and everything said S Corp is the best thing to do. And so I made an S Corp. And now my S Corp is paying an additional, you know, seven and a half percent tax for city taxes. And now they're being double taxed on their income. They had no idea that there was going to be this additional tax that came in. So there's, there's so many like little things that you have to consider. You have to consider what's your spouse's income. Do you have a W-2? Are you going to be exempted from these self-employment taxes that come in? There's a million different things to consider. And obviously it's best to speak with a professional regarding these items, but it's, that's the crux. After you've decided you want to start it, it's about incorporation one. And that incorporation really does involve, you know, picking the LLC or that S corp or a C corp. If you're, you know, if that makes sense for you as well. Right. And I'm so glad that you mentioned this because one of my, my pet peeves is when and everybody automatically flocks to one kind of entity, right? So you mentioned reading an article and this is supposed to be the best for me. There's a lot of facts and circumstances that impact not only the kind of entity, but the tax election inside that entity, right? And so I think that a lot of times people get confused about those things. But something else you said, which I love too, is you know you mentioned Delaware. So I'm in Pennsylvania and I can't tell you how many people tell me that they're setting up, you know, their LLC in Delaware for their dog walking business, right? Because because they've read somewhere that that way they don't have to pay taxes. That is one of the things that I think a lot of people don't get when you start talking about entities and personal services. Can you talk a little bit about like why that doesn't work when you're the dog walker? Well, the point is one, if you're walking dogs in Pennsylvania, you are still going to have to file and pay taxes in Pennsylvania. Right. So that that's step one. Secondly, this of Delaware, and you can probably, you know, from a legal standpoint, give a little more insight than I can. But from my understanding, the purpose of Delaware registrations is really to, so you can't bring owners of a C corporation to court as easily. There's really no other. There are some taxable benefits from a headquarters standpoint to the C corp. But if you're a small business and you're working in, if you're living in New York or you're living in, you know, Kentucky and you've registered your business in Delaware, well, you're going to have to also probably do a registration in your state as well because you're going to be operating out of there and you're going to pay taxes on all the income that's earned in that state. Right. And I hope that that's the key takeaway that folks have uh, so far today is that pay attention to the rules and not just something that you've seen on the internet because I can't, again, I do a lot of uh, cleanup work in my, in my job and the number of people that will incorporate in Nevada or Delaware because they've heard that they pay zero taxes if they do that and then get a surprise later when they haven't been filing returns and it catches up to them. Yeah. That's so huge because it does work for some kinds of entities, right? Like obviously it, if it didn't work, people wouldn't be talking about it, but especially for personal services, which is what a lot of gig workers freelancers, independent contractors do, you can't just pick a tax home that's different from where you're providing services and say, I don't have to pay taxes. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, so I had somebody who came to me, there were a group of pharmacists and they had a bunch of pharmacies in New Jersey and they're doing very well. And they opened up a pharmacy in New York and they were like, well, let's make this one an S-Corp as well. No consultation with anyone, just kind of made the decision. 
and they are paid an extra $100,000 in taxes. Wow. So that's a self-inflicted wound. Usually the issue is you don't pick a structure and now you're paying extra taxes somewhere, but sometimes you can, you know, think too much. Well, and also in certain certain states, New Jersey is one of them where there could be a per partner or tax as well. So you want to you want to know those things up front because I think sometimes we think big as independent contractors, which is great. I mean, I think that that's the fun part, right? Being yeah, an entrepreneur, yeah. but you shouldn't plan like you should plan for the future. All my tax planners are collectively taking a gasp as I'm saying this. Like, I believe you should plan for the future. But you shouldn't come out of the gate thinking, I know I'm going to make $100,000 this year. Because when you start looking at, again, the compliance costs, so the cost of those returns, the the cost of setting up some of those structures, the cost of the per person fees, depending on where where you're incorporated or where you're doing business, Mm -hmm. you don't want those to overwhelm your profits in the beginning. You want to grow into a structure that makes sense, which is why when you mention LLC and S-Corp in particular, sometimes those can provide that level of flexibility that you need. Not always. You should always talk to somebody first to figure out like, not only again, what am I going to do, but how am I going to be taxed? I completely agree. And I also think, you know, like you had mentioned earlier, where people are over-reporting their income in, Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases, I think that's something I also see a lot, especially when it comes to things like a freelancer using a home office deduction or and making sure you take enough credit for the vehicle um, when you're driving, you take your reimbursement for your miles. Things like this are a lot of the times like these programs that maybe you're you're a W-2 employee and you're using TurboTax and TurboTax is great if you're an individual filer. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things you miss out on and maybe can't completely, don't even know to go towards if you don't consult with a professional who can kind of guide you in the right direction for those types of types of things. Right. And you mentioned the home office deduction. That's a great example because we keep hearing that the home office deduction is gone, which it is under the TCJA, mm-hmm. but only for employees, not for freelancers. So if you are an independent contractor, that's an example, a deduction that you can still take that you might not know about. Absolutely. And I think the, the biggest thing that with these surprise tax bills that come in is that self-employment tax, which is a payroll tax that's ultimately tacked onto anybody who does who does this type of gig work. Mm-hmm. So when you are on a Schedule C, which is you know the the separate filing form for anyone that has a side business, you get pretty much almost all of your income is always going to be taxed with an additional fifteen percent self-employment tax up to the first hundred and thirty-five thousand. Now, sometimes you mentioned the per partner fee and all these other fees that are associated with having that proper formation. And a lot of times when you look online, they'll say single member LLC is the worst thing you can ever do. Don't ever do a single member LLC. But that's not always the case. If you are doing something on the side and you have a healthy salary and you and your wife are above you know, a certain limit in terms of income, it could be to your benefit to run these types of businesses as single member LLCs because there won't be that additional tax that's impact uh, that's added on to you. And those losses will also be able to carry over to you. And it's going to be cheaper for you to maintain a structure that's a single member LLC than having separate filing. So exactly. Cause you get to skip that return. So, yeah. So it's all about, you know, being in contact with your professional and finding somebody who kind of knows that space or that area and making sure they know what your goals and, you know, aspirations are with your business. And it's like having a partner with your with your accountant, in my opinion. Yes, I agree completely. If you have a good accountant, you're going to grow. 
Right. And you mentioned self-employment tax. So this is, I think, where a lot of people get into trouble because you think you should be putting it aside as you go. But realistically, and again, I work with a lot of taxpayers. I've also been a freelancer, so I'm not going to sit here and be hypocritical. There are quarters when you just aren't doing that. Again, you know, especially I mentioned being a tax writer, but I have clients who are seasonal giggers. So for example, they will, I have a photographer that I represent and she did extremely well in summers, winters, because summers were weddings and winters were all those Christmas pictures. But you know what? Spring, actually early spring, especially again, we're in Pennsylvania, not necessarily your best weather for your outdoor weddings in particular. So she wasn't doing a lot of portraits, right? So she wouldn't necessarily annualize her income. That's the, you know, the tax, the tax uh, practitioner term, but for, for taxpayers, she didn't average out her income over the, the year. She would just kind of put money in when she could, um, which is better than not doing it at all. So I'm not, in, I'm not criticizing, but how do you get taxpayers to understand that they do need to be putting money away? And do you have any tips for helping folks figure that out? Because I think that that's one of the hardest parts of being a freelancer is planning ahead. And so if you know that you have the essay, you know, in, the, in your head, you know, I, I think most folks aren't. You know, it's not that April comes and they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I mean, I think most people know they just don't plan for it because they always, especially if you're running a business, you're busy and you figure you're just going to figure it out at the end, but then the end comes and then you're busy again. So what do you tell folks or how do you kind of direct people to make better choices in terms of making either estimated payments or doing something else for SE tax? So when it comes to estimated payments, you know, we, I always suggest you do the 110%, right? It, it, unless you obviously things can change and maybe you have less income in a certain year. But in generally, if you pay 110% of your current year tax liabilities of estimated tax payments, there's not going to be penalties and interest on your income. Obviously, right. if there's a drop later on in the year, you can always reduce. Once again, this comes back to having good books, having that monthly bookkeeper that's going to keep you on track and knowing what your numbers are, having the accountant you can send that information to, or at least be able to access it onto your QuickBooks. You don't even have to send it most of the time. That That's the important thing. And, and you know, I tell people all the time, sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. But usually <laughs> after that first set round of penalties for underpayment of estimated taxes, they usually you know, change it on their own. I do have some clients, though, that I think it's a 1% per month on the estimated tax penalties. So it annualizes out to about 6% on your estimated taxes. I have some clients that are day traders and they're like, I'm going to make more than 6% of that money. And I am prepared to pay the penalty on the estimated taxes. That's the way some people think and operate. I also have some people that make way less than 6% on that money that's sitting around. So they don't make that decision. And they actually do make those estimated payments on time just to avoid the headache. Usually the biggest issue though, is if your income is up and down, things can get tied up. You can have money due. just make the estimated payments that are structured to you at that 110%, make your life easier. Mm-hmm. If you owe more, yes, you may have to pay it. If you owe less, congratulations, you got a refund, but at least you don't have to pay additional money and penalty on top of what you're already paying, which is probably considerable. Right. No, I, I think that's really great advice. And I, I think that estimated payments are, are a challenge for folks. In terms of like sorting out, I know we talked about deductions. Do you have any 
suggestions for how to keep track of those outside of like a credit card? I know that people use mileage apps, you know, depending on what you do. Do you have any like tips or suggestions for folks to track expenses? Because I think that's also a problem. Like, let's say you're, you don't have that credit card and you're just paying cash, for example. Yeah. Do you encourage people to take photos of receipts? Like, what do you think works yeah. most easily for people? It's a pain. And it really is, I, I, I have to do it myself for my business. I take pictures of my receipts whenever I'm paying cash. If I'm not using a dedicated card, I'm taking pictures of those receipts because if God forbid there's an audit, you go, you give them these documents, you show that you're someone who's kept track of your stuff. Mm-hmm. And whenever I've dealt with these auditors in the past, they don't want to spend their time digging through a bunch of records. I like, you know, they don't want to dig through someone's past. If you're willing to give them everything up front in a nice bundle, nice and neat, you'll make their life easier. They're probably going to make your life easier too. And that's sure. the way I look at it. If you keep good records, they know they're dealing with someone who's a legitimate business person who is doing the right thing, keeping track of their stuff, makes it easier for them, makes their life easier. They're not going to go and harass you for all these other items. That That's the way I look at it. So it's annoying to take pictures, mm-hmm. taking pictures of those of those items, but especially when you're spending cash, hundred percent when you're spending cash is extremely important to do. When you're doing those, I always annotate them. I think that's helpful because especially when you mention, like if you're paying for a dinner, yes, I would write on it, like dinner with Sagar, talk yes. about real estate. And then that way later when the IRS is like, well, you know, and why were you at, you know, the Ralph's restaurant? You're like, well, clearly I was talking real estate with yeah. Sagar, right? Yeah, exactly. No, that's, that's great. Now, I think in theory, sometimes it's more practical than in reality, whether or not people can do these types of things. Like everything else, the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. Taxes are a huge part of your income. And if you're doing very well for yourself, close to 50% of what you're making is going towards taxes. So you should invest into doing these types of things because they are immediate returns on your money. You're working hard for your money. This is an immediate way to get it back. Writing a a little note on a receipt and taking a picture is not the hardest thing in the world to do. Exactly. Yeah. I I thought one other thing that kind of stuck out to me, um, and I had mentioned it earlier, is the real estate, like the way that people are gravitating towards real estate right now. Mm -hmm. And just definitely something I wanted to point out because I've seen this a lot. I've had a lot of clients who do very, like, very well for themselves or fairly well for themselves over that 175000 a year adjusted gross income limit between them and their spouse. And they get approached to save money on taxes by people who are maybe have like a real estate project. And they'll tell them, hey, look, we have all these great things, we have accelerated depreciation, we have all these ways to show losses. And they tell them, you know, yeah, maybe this isn't the greatest return on your money. But don't worry, your losses that you'll be able to take on your taxes are going to offset everything you invest. And what a lot, a lot of times these people don't realize is you're make, you, they make the investment and that loss that they get is not really helping them with their taxes. It is because there are passive income limitations, right? Mm-hmm. The same way with your freelance gig and your side gig, there are limitations on passive income. So one thing that I've seen that I think could be very useful to somebody who's doing the side gig that or freelance gig, and maybe it's advanced further, is adding a spouse as a partner, as a mm-hmm. partner, 
And then having that past that spouse also be passive investors in these real estate investments if they're going to do them. That way, that income that the spouse picks up as the passive partner in the active businesses will be offset with the losses from those passive uh, real estate investments. I think that's like a nice structure I've seen recently that kind of solves a lot of these issues, especially with real estate becoming becoming a very, very hot industry for people to invest in. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of that. In fact, uh, working on a column about this right now, about flips, seeing a lot of people trying to dip their toes into the market right now because they're seeing some of these huge returns. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, you know, it's funny to me because real estate, so full disclosure, my husband and I had a partnership with friends of ours um, where we bought and renovated and eventually sold real estate. And we are landlords right now. Mm -hmm. But I realized that not everyone is cut out to be a landlord. And I also <laughs> realized that not everyone is cut out to be a flipper. Yeah. Because, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of people buy into these properties with the idea that they are going to be like Chip and Joanna jo uh, Gaines, right? Like mm -hmm. they're going to mm -hmm. actually be knocking down walls and stuff. But when you are actually there, you're not, I think a lot, well, I shouldn't say a lot. I think I know that a lot of my clients who expected to be more of an active participant in a flip or in a real estate business found themselves passive after the fact. Yes. Do you have any kind of cautions, things that they should look for either in terms of structure or structuring the deal even up front um, to kind of cover those bases? Or is it just kind of uh, you figure it out as you go and you, you learn from it? So are you saying like in terms of like, if there's three partners that are getting into something and they realize that, you know, maybe one is going, they thought everybody was going to participate equally into this partnership. And now one guy is kind yes. of doing everything with one and everything. You're saying everybody's, but we're all going to meet every Saturday and work on this building. And then two weeks in, we're realizing it's really just going to be Bob, right? Because the rest of us don't know what we're doing. We yeah. really just want to make money. Yes, exactly. So, you know, there's the material participant. There's different cri criteria for what allows what your status in that deal is. The first one is just a pure passive person, uh, which is more like me, who really doesn't know how to swing a hammer. Right. Then there's, yeah, then there's the active participant, material participant, right? Wherein you don't, we're not necessarily a real estate professional, but you're doing the majority of the work on this project. And that material participant status can result in allowing you to take additional benefits and losses. Uh, depending on the income tax bracket you're in. Mm -hmm. And then the final is being considered a real estate professional, right? And now that real estate professional status, you don't necessarily have to be a real estate agent or a broker. You just have to do certain, you have to hit certain criteria. One of them is that you put 750 hours of service into the year in real estate, showing that material participation of 750 hours. And then the other criteria is, what is it? I think it's, you have to do, oh, half of your income can't be from anything outside of real estate. And that okay. will qualify you as a real estate professional. And in those scenarios, you know, while you're holding a property for while you're a landlord, I'm sure you've discussed the, I'm, in the article you're writing, you're going to be talking about accelerated depreciation, which allows you to take any work that you do. You don't have to depreciate it anymore over 40 years or 27 and a half years. You take the immediate write-off of anything you do to the building, which you know was clarified in that last stimulus bill from twenty, I think, at the end of twenty twenty. 
So that gives tremendous benefits of losses that can be used immediately, especially when there's one spouse that maybe is working and the other one is working on real estate. So structures and speaking with people on that specific scenarios, you know, I wish I could give more specifics, but it really does come down to those specific scenarios and talking with someone about what is happening with you and your plan that allows you to take advantage of these so many opportunities right now. And I should clarify for some of my friends who are listening that the 750 hours cannot consist of simply watching HGTV. Like it's actual participation, right? Yes, correct. Material participation. Exactly. So, well, let's kind of uh, fast forward to what happens when things have been going well for a while. So we talked about starting and we talked about record keeping. Yes. Is there a point where your gig isn't your gig anymore. It's your job. And, and I, you know, we don't have a ton of time to talk about like hobby loss rules and that kind of thing, but Mm -hmm. do you have like some words of wisdom for people who maybe were doing the dog walking and have realized, Hey, this is really going somewhere. Like I was only doing this, you know, 10 hours a week. And now I think I might need to hire somebody because things are really changing. Like I'm really busy. And I think we're seeing more of that as folks are kind of restructuring the way that they think about work and working from home. Do you have any thoughts on like, what's your next step? Is is it to call your tax professional? Is it to think about a different structure? Like what, what should you do when you realize, Hey, this isn't just my side gig anymore. I think this is like a real business. So I think the first thing is Exactly what you and I talked about in the beginning, which is treating this thing like it's a business, right? Where Mm -hmm. it's having made sure that you pick that right structure from the beginning so that you're now not with this unfortunate scenario where you have to unwind the current business and change your EINs and reopen new bank accounts and all this other nonsense. You already elected the right structure from the beginning. So now that you have the proper foundation from the jump, whether or not you thought this thing was going to be as big as it got to or not, Mm -hmm. you had that proper foundation so you can build on top of it, right? You know, that comes out to, once again, having the, so to me personally, I think the best problem you can have is when you have too much profit in the business (laughs) at the end of the year, right? Because that's when we can start doing all, we can start putting, using retirement plans, we can use pension plans, we can start, you know, taking the money and using it to pay you know, and grow the business so that it's an expense and you don't have to pay taxes on it while you're still growing the business, looking to exit in the future. So those are great options and great problems to have. And God bless you if you get to the point where you get there. <laughs> but the key is making sure that foundation is in place in the beginning so that you can easily build on top of it. Great. I think that's a wonderful lesson to take away. So thank you so much. I think this is uh, really valuable, especially for people who maybe in transition because of coming out of the pandemic and rethinking the way that they've been working. So thank you. I think this has been great. If you wanted to be found and people wanted to find you either on the web or on social media, where would you send them? So Instagram is probably the best spot for me. And it's my name at Sagar Shah 530. And I'm sure Kelly will throw it in the show notes so that if you want to find me, please, you know, come and find me. Perfect. And thank you again. This is terrific. Thank you. Appreciate being on. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, 
please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.